Have you ever considered that what we believe by most of the world is considered absurd? I mean, if you think about it through maybe a different lens uh, of just saying that your hope of eternity, what happens to you after you die, the purpose of your living, your forgiveness of sin, is based on the idea that 2,000 years ago, there was a man, a Jewish man, in a fairly obscure area of the world, and little known, a few hundred folks living in this village, that claimed that he was born... Um, from a from a virgin, no no father, uh, no human father that was in the procreated process, and he wasn't just a man, but he claimed also to be God and man, who, with just a few men around him for a few years. Uh, and, and quickly thereafter was arrested by the Roman authorities, beat up, beer plucked out, whipped, scourged, put on a cross, nailed to a cross, hung there, naked, everyone laughing at him, making fun of him, uh, There died, spear put into the side, his body put into someone else's tomb. And then, three days later, came out of the tomb and appeared to some women. And the women told some men. And then these men claimed to have seen this One man named Jesus who was crucified, buried, and then came out out of the tomb. And then told the disciples uh, to go and tell everyone about these things. And then went up to heaven. So, our hope is based on this one man who's not here now. 2,000 years ago was here, but can't be seen. He was now in heaven And that is the meaning of your existence. Right? Um, Is that... Could you see how that might strike someone as absurd? Just a little bit out there? But nonetheless, if you're not... If you don't believe that, you happen to be around a bunch of folks who do. um, And that would be cause for alarm. You know, uh, what, what kind of group have I got myself into? But welcome to the church. All right, this is a church, this is a gathering of people who throughout history have believed exactly that. Uh, and they would tell you all kinds of other crazy things like, yeah, we believe in one God, but God has three persons, all separate, and, but yet all one. And you say, What? Um, yeah, and Jesus is both God and both man, set, you know, all together, and, and He's one. You know what? How? There are some things that will blow our mind and will be absurd. And 
for this reason, we better know from whence these things come from. We better know the source of this type of content. Because, like it or not, we've got all our chips in this idea. We've got our chips in these, this data, this historical information that we claim to be historical. We've got it all based on that. And we're going to tell you that my hope for living is based on this body of information. What happens to me after I, I die? When my heart stops beating, does it start beating somewhere else? And where is that? It's all based on this body of information called the gospel. You better know from where it comes from. You will be challenged. Many people do not believe in the gospel and think it's quite absurd. And they will say, you really believe that crazy story is the hope of the universe? Really? If I don't believe that, Are you telling me that if I don't believe that, and I don't trust in that, and I don't put all my chips in that, that I'm going to die and go to hell for eternal punishment? you telling me that? And there's all kinds of people in the world that don't believe that? Is that what you're saying? And we'll say that's what the gospel says, that's what the Bible says. Well, tell me about this Bible. Why should I believe that? And what would you say? Why should you believe in the Bible? When there is the thing called a Quran, when there's the Book of Mormons, there's all kinds of different uh, holy writings. Why do we believe in the Bible? And it does come down to one idea that this Bible, this gospel, is revealed by God. There is authority from, because of where it comes from. Now, um, atheists and agnostics, they... They come to us at an advantage. They try to, anyway. We we propose a system of belief. We propose a body of truth. All they do is say, nah, nah. There there is no proposing on their end. Okay, what is what is the 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 truth by which you live? What is the system that you guide your life by? What is the construct that you give us? Most folks will often criticize you and attack you for what you believe. But understand, they are in the same difficulties that we are in and that we're living this life. And sometimes the best thing we can do is ask them, what what do you believe? What, what is it that's shaping why you live? What is it that's shaping what's important to you? And why is it important to you? Why are these things make you happy? What are these things that you put into your life that seem worthwhile? Why is that in your life? We often don't think about that. We let them attack us. But we never pause to think. And they never pause to think, unfortunately, what it is they believe and why. What is it that gives their life value? Sometimes the best thing you can ask people uh, when they are attacking you is, what, what do you value in your life and why? More importantly, why do you value it? And so Paul was feeling this. Remember, we're looking at, Paul, at Galatians chapter 1. We'll be there again today. And um, Paul 
uh, sharing in Galatians chapter 1, the very first part, verse 1 through 5, he gives us the two themes of the entire book, uh, the, the authority of the gospel, uh, the authority of God in the gospel, and the initiative of God in the gospel are the two themes that he introduces to us right from the very beginning uh, in, in, in verses 1 through 5 um, of, of what God is doing. Uh, and then in verses 6 through 10, we looked at last week, and the very idea is, is that there is no other gospel. He says, because of the authority of God in this gospel, there is no other gospel. And he was uh, identifying how some folks had just added to the gospel a little bit by saying, well, okay, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, this is good. He did die for your sins. Yes, yes. But if you want to be a follower of God, you want to get right with God, then you you can't bypass becoming a Jew. You've got to go through the steps of of fulfilling the law, of being circumcised. And so they just said that Paul's gospel was incomplete. Let's just add to it a little bit. And so they weren't even they were not even teaching like uh Islam. They weren't teaching a whole nother religion. They were just teaching a variety, if you will. But Paul looks at it and says, hey, this isn't just a variety. This is another gospel. Not that there is another gospel. As we looked in verses 6 through 10. And so the the shocking uh, truth that he's saying is there is no other gospel than what is presented in Jesus Christ. And this is just as shocking today as it was in Paul's day. And so uh, we talked about that, that what that means, if you, if you distort it, it it's going to bring on the, the curse of God. But if you are going to hold true to that, it's going to be disappointing, not to God, but disappointing to the world around you. You know that in verse 10, he says, I'm, I'm, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. He says, look, this is going to be disappointing to other people, but other people are not whom you're serving. You are serving God. So now, verse 11 through 24, he's going to appeal uh, to two bases or two arguments as to why this is the only gospel. And I would take note because you will be challenged. Your moment's going to come when someone asks you, do you really believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Do you really believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So I would take note to how Paul responds in this this text. Verse 11, and let's go through uh, verse 24. In honor of this being God's word, let's, let's stand as we read this. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia 
and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing, said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. He may be seated. I was watching a debate this past week between uh, Christopher Hutchison, who's written uh, a couple very popular uh, books uh, uh, proposing atheism, and uh, William Lane Craig, um, one, one of the one of my mentors, so to speak, of, of folks I, I read and, uh, and arguing about the existence of God. And William Lane Craig was bringing the point to Christopher Hutchison, uh, very specifically saying, "You're not proposing anything." All you are is attacking. Why have you not proposing? And it was amazing. For ten minutes, uh, Christopher Hutchison, in this debate, uh, distracted uh, and evaded the question uh, because he knew it was true that once he did propose something, then it was subject for the same criticism that he was putting toward Christianity. Uh, Paul uh, knows what this feels like. He knows what it's like to be attacked. Uh, he uh, soon after leaving Galatians, uh, the, the, the Bible seems to tell us that there were those who came perhaps from Jerusalem area uh, who were not only attacking the gospel that Jesus preached, but uh, that Paul preached, but attacking Paul himself and saying, this guy is just a second-hand dude. Uh, he doesn't really know accurately the gospel. Uh, and so, you know, let's just, let's just understand that Paul is not a great teacher and let me show you a better way. Uh, and so, Paul... Uh, hearing these things and and being a very accommodating person, you remember Romans 14 when we we looked at that a couple of a couple of summers ago. Um, Romans 14:15, we see in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul has some accommodation to him. He says, "Look, I became as all things to all people, so that by some means I might win some. By all means, I might win some." The idea is that he learned, he knew how to accommodate, but when it came to the gospel and the critical nature of the gospel, he there was no accommodating. We have the strongest word of cursing uh, from Paul in, in Galatians uh, chapter 1, uh, as we see in verse 9 and 8. He says, let them go to hell, those who are teaching another gospel. Just very strong. And so in verse 11, he's starting to defend what he's sharing. First of all, when he's looking at the authority of the gospel that he's preaching, he says the authority of the gospel is supported, one, by the source of the gospel, the source of this gospel. And I'm going to tell you, it is critical when you're talking with people who don't believe in Jesus Christ, that is the, the issue you've got to get to is what is the source of what you believe? Why is it you believe what you believe? And Paul is going to tell the Galatians, let me tell you why I believe what I believe. Verse 11, for what I have you know, brothers, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. This is not an invention of mankind. We already looked at how absurd it is when we look at it by man's perspective. And it is very absurd. And that speaks to the idea, man didn't make this up. It it has another source outside of man's idea. This is not the invention of mankind, the accumulation of men trying to tell a story so that they can get power in their day and age, because I can assure you they got no power in their day and age for this uh, this body of truth that they were giving. And so he says, this is not man's invention. Um, this, is, this is something that God himself gave. Verse 12, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, 
but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I remember the first time uh, the book, this book um, caught my eye. I was talking with a man, an older mentor by the name of Jesse Henley, uh, and he was in his 80s. And he was uh, teaching some of us young guys in college, and, and he, he said, you need, and he had this raspy voice, I can't do it, but you need to master Paul's letters. I'm like, okay. Uh, he said, because he received the gospel from God himself according to the Galatians 1. And I, for some reason, I never noticed it. But there it is, right here in Galatians 1. Paul is saying, I received something from God. It is a revelation, this understanding of the gospel. Now, let me just explain this a little bit. Um, because what we're talking about here is that Paul didn't learn the details of, of Jesus' life through revelation. Okay, As we read in Acts chapter 9, uh, it tells us the story of Paul's conversion. And one of the things that we learn in Acts chapter 9 is that Paul was familiar with the Christians. In fact, it tells us that Paul in Acts 7, known then by Saul, was a witness and approved of the persecution and killing of Stephen, the, uh, the first martyr. In fact, as such, we know that Paul would have heard the sermon that Stephen gave all through Acts 7, showing Christ in the Old Testament and how we must come to him for salvation. He would have been familiar uh, with the teachings of Christ. Uh, and so it's not an introduction of the fact that Jesus came and, and uh, that he died and uh, that he rose again. He would have heard about that. Being a teacher or being a leading scholar, a zealot in Jerusalem, in this time period. So what was it exactly that was revealed uh, to Paul? And I would argue to you that what was revealed to Paul was, first of all, that he came to knowledge of who Jesus was in his heart and in his mind, not because of someone teaching it to him, but by God himself, and further, the unpacking of what that meant was done by God. All right, uh, the story given for us is in Acts chapter 9, it's repeated, Paul repeats it in Acts 22. He repeats it in Acts 26, his conversion. Let me just, uh, let me just read it to you. Acts 26, verse 13 through 18, it may be on the screen. Um, it says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul... Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, you can't go against the master. Uh, you, if this is all things are working toward the master and you're going against me. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Okay. <laughs> A lot of things were just revealed to Paul at this point. Uh, every once in a while I like to uh, mingle with folks. And I, I don't tell folks I'm a pastor right off. You know, I... I I kind of like to hide that, honestly. Um, you get to know the people better <laughs> when you don't tell them that you're a pastor of a church. I mean, they, you know, they don't have the guards up. Um, but every once in a while, somehow it comes, maybe it's through a question directly asked me or somehow it's revealed. Uh, and, and so it's not that they didn't know me before. They knew who I was. They saw me. But then it was revealed to them who or what I do. And it changes things. 
Well, here G- Paul was familiar with Jesus and who he was and the claims against them. But then when he sees uh, this light and hears this voice saying, why are you persecuting me? And he asks, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. It was that kind of moment of, uh-oh. Oh. And so what has been revealed to him? Jesus of Nazareth was not just a man that was crucified for claiming to be a Messiah. You need to understand, there were a lot of people who claimed to be a Messiah in that day and age. Paul would have been familiar with quite a few of them. And Jesus would have been chalked up of just one of many who had come before. Gamaliel talks about this in one of the councils that when they're trying to decide, what do we do with these folks who claim to be followers of Christ? And Gamaliel said, look, if there have been many who have claimed this way, and they've just gone away. But if this is of God, you don't want to go against this. In other words, we don't have to do anything. It's going to die on its, on its own. And many movements did die of its own. Those who claimed to be messiahs uh, in that day and age. And, and so uh, Paul is saying, okay, this is not just one who claimed. He is not just, he's not dead. <laughs> he's not dead. He's talking to me. Jesus has been revealed to him that he's resurrected. It's been revealed to him that Jesus, this resurrected one, is, in, is glorified in the presence of God and is still alive today. This has been revealed to him. It's been revealed to him. You remember when he said, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And he says, well, how have I been persecuting? And the, the idea is, when you kill the saints, when you beat the saints, when you imprison the saints, you're imprisoning me. What was revealed to Paul? The body of Christ. This thing, this mystery called the church was revealed to him at this moment when he says, when you attack God's people, you're attacking me. Now, notice what else he says. These, these are big, major lessons that Paul is going to uh, re- unpack as time goes on. Uh, as, as we read in verse um, 16, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen me and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. What was revealed to Paul? That this thing called this church, this thing called salvation, is not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, which will become a defining purpose for his life. It was revealed to him at this point. But notice verse 18. To open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Okay, So, what's revealed to them is that the gospel is based on forgiveness of God, not by works of law. And it's elaborated further, he says, they may receive the forgiveness of sin, and place among those who are sanctified by faith. And me, what was revealed to Paul in this Damascus road is the very thing that Paul would be spending the rest of his life unpacking, considering, thinking that salvation is not by works of law, but is done by faith. It's not just to the Jews. It's for the Gentiles. They're not just people. Now they're God's body of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not in a tomb. He's risen from the dead. He's speaking to me now. All that in one moment (laughs) that God speaks. I'm going to tell you, when God speaks for just 60 seconds in your life, you'll spend the rest of your life getting over it. And that's what Paul is doing. He never did get over it, nor should you get over when God speaks to us. And so, uh, what, what, is, what does Paul do here? He, he's saying, look, this has been given to us, not by man. All right, it's, it's been independent of man's teaching. Now, I would say this. Though it was given independently to Paul... From God, 
it was not in contradiction to what God had told others. Okay? It was not in contradiction to what God has told others. This is important. When he gets together with Peter later on, they're going to realize how it's in harmony with one another. This is the, the message of the gospel. Listen, when folks ask you, why do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Let me just share with you that one of the things that, that holds true to me is I tell them because the Bible is utterly unique among all other books and all other things that claim to be a revelation of God. So do you realize that the, the Bible is not one book but a collection of books, a collection of 66 books, all these books written by 40 different writers, and that the compiling and the writing of this Bible took place in a period of over 1,500 years, and that these writers were, many of them, independent of one another, some of them separated by education, some were kings and and scholars, and some were fishermen and shepherds, uh, and some of them were separated by countries, even a continent. Some we got different languages involved in this, but yet there is a harmony with one another that there is the same problem, the same solution from the beginning to the end and a compiling of a filling of it with one another. Not a disjointed piece of literature, not something that's contradictory, but it's something that has a, a complementary truth and filling out of who God is is unique. And it's not one man that says, oh, you know what? I had a wonderful dream last night and God spoke to me. Let me write it down and bam, believe in it. Bank your eternity on it. You see a problem with that? One person who claims to have a revelation. They could say anything. And who's going to hold them accountable? Where is the verification in that? The Bible has an utterly different nature to it. And Paul says, there's one gospel. And let me appeal to you because it is of God. It's not man's invention. How do I know the Bible is not a man's, man's invention? I would say not just the unique aspects of, of, um, of the Bible, but I would also point to you and the content of what it says, that the content is, is um, well, insulting to the human authors. Why would a human author write such things as, as Peter's? Uh, many people believe that Mark is, uh, Peter is the source for the book of Mark. Of course, you got the Peter's letters. Um, but you, you've got this gospel story, this narrative that is insulting to Peter that makes them look like a bunch of imbeciles most of the time. So if you're going to write a book, why would you talk about all your stupid deeds and how you've insulted the creator of the world? You, you've got this, these details that don't fit man-made invention. You've got other stories or other aspects of the story that, that doesn't fit into a cultural trend uh, because it wasn't a product of the culture. For example, when Jesus rises from the dead, who are the first witnesses of the, of the resurrection? The women. The women. And so who is it that's appointed for uh, the other disciples to know about the resurrection? Who does that? The women. Why is that stunning? Because in that day and age, women were not considered as credible witnesses in a legal court of law. So if you're going to write a book and talk about the single most important event of the belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you're going to say, well, here are the witnesses, and you produce women. That's not going to be a product of the cultural. It is countercultural. Not just in Jesus and, and the Jews 
day is countercultural to our day, but it's countercultural uh, to the Arab world and every culture. You're going to find truths in the Bible that's countercultural to all of it, to, to various parts. It's not a product of a cultural. Here in our day and age, we have a, a problem with believing that God's going to send people to hell. You go to the Arab world, they have a problem with God giving mercy. All right? It's countercultural. It's not a product of a culture. It is of God, not of man. So Paul says, here's why I say there is no other gospel. Consider the source of the gospel that is not of man, but of God. There's much more I could say here. I don't have time. <laughs> so, um, looking further, verse 13 and following, another basis um, for this audacious statement that there is no other gospel, not only the source of the gospel, but the power of the gospel. Verse 13, he starts defending his apostleship here. He says, verse 13, You've heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. This was a good Jew. One of the things that strikes me about the gospel is that the gospel was born among such people as Paul. Who, Jesus being God, is a curse. The gospel annoying Dietary laws, Sabbath laws, and some and, and, and nullifying some of their, their religion. The gospel was born among people who were not prone to it. Extreme monotheism. They don't want any kind of dilution whatsoever of, of their God, the invisible God. And here Jesus is coming on the scene saying, Yeah, I'm God. You need to worship me, and you don't need to perform all these works of law from which Paul's life was based upon. And he said, I'm zealous. And so when he's, when he's approving of the stoning of Stephen, he's pitting men and women and beating them and putting them in prison. He's going doing it with a song in his heart. All right? Praise God from I mean, just, that's his mentality. It's the mentality of many in this world of beating, imprisoning, doing so in worship of God. So he's zealous in this. Verse 15. By the way, one of the arguments that you will share with other people is God's power in your life. They can argue with you all day, but somewhere along the way, if you say, you know what, I've got reasons to believe this, this is not just a figment of imagination, but more importantly, God's done a work in my heart, and they see it. That's how God speaks to people today. Paul is appealing to that same thing. Verse 15 says, I described my life before. All right, when you share your testimony, describe what your life was like before you came to know Jesus. Main ingredient of sharing your testimony. Second ingredient of sharing your testimony, how'd you come to know Christ? All right? And I would say to you that verse 15 will be applied to you. You will be able to say the same thing that Paul says in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, 
Whoa. <laughs> I love that. Um, you remember the two themes of the gospel of, of Galatians? Um, the initiative of God in the gospel? Paul's hitting on this. This was God's initiative. Before I was born, he set me apart. Before you were born, God set you apart. We, there's a part of us that wants to argue with that. Oof. Didn't I have to say any of this thing? I'd say yes. But God knew what your say would be. God knew and designed a universe knowing all the possible choices that could be made, designed a world where the variables are such that when it comes time to you coming into existence, by your own free will, you choose him. Now, you want me to elaborate on that? I'm sorry. I'll just restate it again. I can't explain how God does that, other than if you're God, you get to do stuff like that, you know? But he designed a world where he knew all the potential choices of mankind. Things where it could have gone. Designed a world where it was set up so that you would freely choose to follow him. But he knew it from before you were born. Who called me by his grace. But when he was pleased to reveal his son to me. Here's something that, that gets me. Last week, I, I, I preached the same message that everybody here was listening. One person received the message of the gospel with joy in their heart and humility and said, I want that. I believed. And they cry. Another person hearing the same gospel message last week yawns. I think, oh, that's great. Both of them need it. Both need the gospel. One receives it with joy and tears in the heart. The other receives it with a yawn. Here's my thought. It's Paul's thought here. How does that happen? It happens, verse 15, when God is pleased to reveal his son to the person. I may be witnessing to someone and I'll do what God's called me to do. He has ordained not only people to come to follow him, he's ordained the means by which they do it. It's through mankind. When Paul had that Damascus Road experience, he then told Ananias, I want you to go and meet with Paul and pray with him so that God, so that I will remove his blindness. Why did God do that? Why didn't God just say, you know, Paul, you're not blind anymore? He ordained the means of working through a brother in Christ. God adorns, ordains us not to follow him, but he also adorns, ordains us to talk and share the gospel. I will share the gospel with people who do not know, who do not understand. I will share the gospel with them and I will pray with them because God has asked me to. It is through that which God will work. But I need to understand that it's not because of my persuasiveness. It's not because of my tearing, my crying and passionate prayers. It's not because of the passion involved in that. It's because of God working through that. It's because God speaking to a heart so that when someone tearfully receives the good news of Jesus Christ, that there's forgiveness, it's because God's revealed it. 
So what does that mean for those of us who have loved ones that we're desperately wanting to see them come to know the Lord? We pray for them and we share the gospel with them, but understand that it's God who saves them. He'll do it in his time and we, there's got to be a part of this just waits on God. And let him work. So in God's timing, he reveals his son to Paul in order that he might preach among the Gentiles. You get this, before Paul was born, God had a plan for him. I want you to put your name there. Before you were born, God has a plan for you. Do you believe that? He does. Paul says, looking back, (laughs) the timing and Gamaliel's feet learning, the time in Jerusalem, the time that I was stoning or being a part of that, stoning uh, Stephen, God was at work. And I'm going to tell you, I look back at my life and I can see now, I didn't know it then, but I could see now how God was speaking to my heart in various ways. People I was trying to avoid because they, they seemed like they could see through me and my charade that I was putting on and I, I didn't like them, but God was using them and using the circumstances of my life to get to the point where I understood and was confronted by the truth of God. I needed a save. I encourage you, look back on your life and see the hand of God moving in your heart, in your life. He's been doing it ever since you were born and before, working in your life. So, verse 15. When this happened, I did not immediately consult with anyone. What is he saying? I'm receiving this gospel independently from others. Verse 17, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. In verse 18, we see that, that there's a three-year period that takes place here. Um, so this is a uh, completing of the story given to us in Acts and Luke that, that's not given uh, in that passage, but this completes it here, Paul giving his testimony. He went down to Arabia. Moses asked, well, well, that's because he needed to meditate, he needed to study. Um, and some are saying, well, maybe it's because he's preaching uh, to the people in the Arabian area. Um, I would say probably both. You know, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what he's doing. He just was this for three years. I was there and I wasn't among the Jewish believers in Jerusalem at that time. Um, it's interesting to note that Arabia was not was considered uh, the area around Damascus uh, and, and, and south toward uh, the Arabian Peninsula. Where Petra is, um, it was the Nabataean kingdom. It was classified as Arabia in that time. In fact, there's an interesting passage in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 32 and 33. Paul says that Damascus, the governor under, under King Aretas, which was the king over the Nabataeans under the Roman uh, rule, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Argument could be that this could, this could point to the fact that Paul was preaching in the area outside of Damascus into the Rabin area, um, and that upset the king and said, I'm, I'm trying to get rid of this guy. And so he's waiting at the very edge next to Damascus where he could arrest him and then says he evaded that. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. And so after three years, he has his 15 uh, day, a couple weeks encounter, primarily so he can talk with Peter and say, Peter, tell me about the time of Jesus and uh, what went on. I don't think they talked about the Super Bowl. All right. I think this this would have been an interesting 
encounter uh, between Peter and Paul. He says, and there's one other, verse 19, as kind of a, a side effect, meeting with James, the Lord's brother. Um, many believe the one who wrote the book of James and the leader of the church uh, in Jerusalem. And verse 20, what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. It's perhaps maybe somewhat of a legal oath. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia. And in Acts 22, verse 17 through 21, it tells us that in this 15-day period where he meets with Barnabas and others, he has a trance. He's in the, in the uh, temple in Jerusalem. And in that moment in time in prayer, he, he gets into a, a trance in which God tells him to leave Jerusalem because they will not receive his testimony and that he is to go far away. And so we find that he goes to Syria and, and uh, Sicilia. This is the, the area, the region where his home city would have been. In verse 22, And I was still unknown in persons to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. You know what I love about this? Is that he gives verifiable information. Check me up on this. And you'll see that in the Gospels. It gives verifiable information. It gives specific places, specific times, uh, rulers, so that anyone looking back in history can can account. It's amazing how archaeology uh, archaeologists who are not trying to prove the Bible, in fact, could care less about it, do exactly verify the Bible by seeing historical figures in history and the archaeological and the ruins and see, locating places. The Bible that up until that time the only testimony we had was the Bible. It gives us verifiable information. You don't see this in the Quran or what it is given in the Quran. It's just wrong. Historically wrong. Um, in other books, it doesn't give this verifiable information. And then, verse 23, it says, The Judean church didn't know me. All they know and all they ever heard, verse 23, was he who, perse- who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith. He once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of me. So here's the question I want to ask you. Who's glorifying God because of you? If you were to disappear from this earth, would there be anyone missing the encouragement of God in their heart because you're not there? If you disappear, would anyone be missing the voice of God speaking to them because you're not there that God's using? Who is glorifying God because of you? Do you understand that this is for the very purpose that the world has been made? To glorify God? Do you understand it is the very purpose for which you are made? To glorify God? It is fundamental to the existence of, of our DNA and our blood, our flesh, our mind, is that God would receive glory. Not just in our own body, in our mind, in the spirit, but that it would ripple out. When someone considered Paul, they just said, to God be the glory. What great things God has done. Look how God changed this person. Who's glorifying God because of you? There's a lot of people who don't believe in the Bible. Perhaps it's because they've never examined the evidence for the Bible. Perhaps it's because they've never seen a human being changed by the gospel 
of the Bible. And all they see are just more of the same, just different language, different religion. There may be some of you here this morning, and this is all interesting, good and well, but you're saying, great, Pastor, but I'm not going to believe in God until he answers my questions. I've got some questions in my heart, and I'm going to hold God to the task. And until that time comes, I'm not believing him. Reminds me of Matthew 21, verse 23 and 27. The last week of his life in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered, I will ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from man? I could ask you this question. This gospel that I've been telling you, is it from heaven or is it from man? The chief priests and elders said to themselves, if we say from heaven, he would say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the multitude because they think John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. God's not going to be badgered by your agnostic thoughts, your indifference. He says, I want you to come down, and I want you to get serious with me. Tell me the answer to my question, and I'll answer your question. Is this gospel from man, or is it of God? And until you're willing to answer that question, God's not answering your question. Let's pray.